Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. It's Monday, June 13th. I'm Travel Anderson. And I'm Josie Duffy Rice. And this is What a Day, the podcast that plays when you put a seashell from the beach up to your ear. Yes, we encourage you to try this. And believe me that you will hear us if you listen really, really closely. Super, super, super closely. (laughs) On today's show, the average price of gas spilled past the $5 mark. Plus, thousands celebrated pride this past weekend, although some events were marred by threats of violence. But first, it was a big weekend for gun control activists and gun reform laws. So uh, let's start with this. That's the sound of demonstrators in D.C. during last Saturday's nationwide anti-gun rallies organized by the group March for Our Lives. Travel, what can you tell us about the protests? Yes. So as many may remember, March for Our Lives is the organization founded by survivors of the 2018 mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. In the aftermath of that shooting, they had organized what became the largest single day of protest against gun violence in history. Well, in light of the last few weeks in which there's been an absurd number of mass shootings, including those in a Black neighborhood of Buffalo, New York, and at an elementary school in in Uvalde, Texas. Hundreds more rallies happened nationwide in at least 45 states and Washington, D.C. Organizers say rallies even took place internationally in Spain, France, Switzerland, Italy, and Germany. Saturday's demonstrations marked the first ones by the organization in four years, and thousands of folks led by young people showed up expressing their anger over the federal government's continued inaction since. Here is Jacqueline Corin, one of the co-founders of March for Our Lives speaking in D.C. Many of us have been wearing our marching shoes for years, but today we're telling Congress, we're telling the gun lobby, and we're telling the world, this time is different. This time is different because we've had enough. We've had enough of having more guns than people here in America. We've had enough of kids being afraid to go to school, grown-ups being afraid to go to grocery stores, and families who look like my family being afraid to go to their houses of worship. Wow. Meanwhile, in Congress, a group of senators that have been working on bipartisan gun safety measures announced a deal yesterday. Can you walk us through what it entails? Yes, but first let me start by mentioning that the House did pass a gun control bill last week. Theirs would bar the sale of semi-automatic weapons to people under the age of 21. It would ban the sale of large-capacity magazines, and it would implement a federal red flag law. But it was expected to fail in the Senate from the beginning because Republicans. And it had barely passed the House in the first place. So Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, at the request of Senator Chris Murphy, 
who's been leading the delegation of Democrats in the Senate talks, has been waiting to hold a vote on it. And now, as you mentioned, the framework from those discussions in the Senate were announced yesterday. And let's just be clear that the Democrats were focused on putting something together that would actually pass. So that meant compromising and not advocating for some of the more progressive gun control measures you might hear. And so the deal, which is being considered a significant step, is purposefully not as sweeping as it could be. It was put together by 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats, so bipartisan, and it has been endorsed by President Biden. It includes enhanced background checks to give authorities time to check both the juvenile and mental health records of any prospective gun buyer under the age of 21. They also want to toughen federal laws to stop gun trafficking. The plan would provide funding for states to implement red flag laws. These laws would allow authorities to temporarily confiscate guns from people deemed to be dangerous. And there's also some money that's supposed to go toward mental health resources and boosting safety and mental health services at schools. Yeah, I have to say some of that stuff sounds okay. And some of it sounds not so good, like keeping juveniles records, etc. But I guess we'll see as the bill continues to progress. So they're also attempting to address what's called the boyfriend loophole. So can you talk for a second about what that is? Yeah, so the boyfriend loophole is a gap in federal and some state laws that basically allows domestic abusers to still own firearms. The current Senate deal would address this by prohibiting people from owning guns if they've been convicted of domestic violence or were subject to a domestic violence restraining order. Currently, only domestic abusers who are married to, live with, or parent a child with a victim are barred from having a firearm. This, in particular, is something advocates have been trying to address for some time, but as recent as March of this year, Republicans weren't having it, which to me feels like the perfect time to remind everyone that this deal right now, it is just an outline. The legislation is not finalized and a number of things can and likely will change before it is put up for a vote. Another story we're following today involves last week's primary election. We wanted to give you a breakdown about the recall of San Francisco District Attorney Chase Boudin. Boudin is considered a, quote, progressive prosecutor, which is a somewhat oxymoronic phrase that we use to describe prosecutors who acknowledge the role that that position has historically played in mass incarceration and who want to take a different approach. After his recall, there was this narrative from other media outlets that it signals really bad news for progressive district attorneys everywhere. But we wanted to share some facts about how that idea is probably wrong. So to remind people, he lost by a significant margin after 60 percent of voters voted in favor of recalling him. But what led to the backlash against him, Josie? Yeah, there are some specific nuances here that I don't want to downplay that are relevant, right? So a lot of people were unhappy with his response to an uptick in hate crimes against Asian people, for example. But the overarching answer to your question of what led to the backlash is that voters in San Francisco were upset by what they see as a rise in crime, and they largely blamed Chase up for that. Gotcha. So you follow prosecutors pretty closely. I think that's safe to say. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts about the basic feeling that voters seem to have? First, you know, has crime risen in San Francisco? 
Well, when it comes to crime, and this is generally true, not just true in San Francisco, it's not as easy as saying, like, crime is up or crime is down, right? There are a lot of different kind of crimes. Some of them are up, some of them are down. You know, it varies. In San Francisco Mm -hmm. and around the country, um, crime generally went up in the first months of the pandemic. And since then, it has generally gone down to pre-pandemic levels. In fact, in San Francisco in particular, police data shows that violent crime has actually declined in that time and is around the lowest it's been in almost 40 years. Now, again, crime is complicated, and there are some crimes that have increased. Most notably, homicide has increased in San Francisco, like it has in almost every city across the country. Nationally, homicide has increased by about 30%. In San Francisco, it's increased a bit more by about 36%. Now, that 36% sounds like a lot, but Mm -hmm. what does it actually mean? Well, that is a great question, because obviously we don't want to downplay the significance of people's dying. Mm -hmm. But when we talk in percentage jumps, it can seem that we're talking about more extreme numbers than you might guess, right? So that 36% increase in homicides is about 15 more homicides in 2021 than the year before. And of course, 15 additional deaths, again, a tragedy regardless. But many people hear 36% increase and they're thinking numbers in like Mm -hmm. the hundreds. They're just thinking tons and tons of people. And even with that increase, San Francisco has a lower homicide rate than most cities in the country. And homicide is still down significantly from where it's been in the past, right? So I think that 36% can be really misleading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there are other crimes that have increased too, like some property crimes are up, burglaries are up, car break-ins are up, for example, in San Francisco. But overall, property crime is actually down. So again, it's more complicated than one may think. And it's especially more complicated than the narrative by the pro-recall campaign against uh, Chesa, if you've been hearing that. Right. And you mentioned earlier that voters blame Chesa for that rise in crime. But I want to know what you think. Is it his fault or responsibility when crime goes up? Well, in my opinion, and again, I spend a lot, an embarrassing amount of time on this (laughs) exact issue (laughs) of prosecutorial power. Right. In my opinion, the answer is unequivocally no. It's just not his fault. Uh, when crime rises or when it is reduced, right? It's not surprising that voters feel that way. It's a really common perception that I think in San Francisco in particular was magnified by the over $7 million spent uh, largely by special interests on the recall campaign. But it's the wrong perception, and, and I'll explain why. First of all, it reflects this long-existing misunderstanding of the criminal legal system. And it's a misunderstanding that police and tough-on-crime prosecutors have long played into for decades. But police and prosecutors are not preventative. They get involved after a harm has already happened. So this idea that they prevent crime is just wrong. Right. And so therefore, you're saying the DA is not responsible when crime goes up or down. Yeah. I mean, I think, of course, right, like Chesa could have locked up half of San Francisco and crime would probably have gone down. If you lock up (laughs) enough people, crime will go down. And it would be one thing if you were letting serial killers wander the streets. Like you can imagine scenarios in which you'd be like, Mm -hmm. that may be contributing. But that's not what's happening. Right. And traditionally, the way prosecutors have, quote unquote, prevented crime is by just indiscriminate incarceration, locking people up, for really long periods for small infractions. We actually know how to prevent crime, Travel, right? Like when you have a place to live, when you have housing, when you have access to addiction treatment, when you can pay your rent, when you can feed your family, you know, that reduces crime. But it's not now and never really has been that crime is reduced through the prosecutor's office. 
Mm-hmm. Also, it's worth noting that in places like Sacramento, which had a very, very, very tough on crime prosecutor, crime is up even more than it is in San Francisco. And so there's really just not a correlation with the politics of the office and a rise in crime because, again, the office doesn't drive these dynamics. It's also worth noting in, in San Francisco that the police there solve about 8% of crime, 8 out of 100%, just so we're clear, right? And so, you know, mm. to the extent that someone is um, part of the system is failing in San Francisco, I believe that you could really source that back to the police much more than the prosecutor's office, right? I see what you did there. Just saying. A lot of news outlets are framing this as the beginning of the end of the progressive prosecutor movement and like a bad sign for criminal legal reform. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, who knows? Anything could happen. But I'm not particularly worried, at least not right now. And I think the media response is kind of outrageous. I mean, look, tough on crime rhetoric has gained a lot more steam across the country because of the recent kind of fears of rising crime. But Chase's recall is still a really big aberration. Even when you just look at California on election day last week, it's an aberration. So that prosecutor I mentioned in Sacramento, the tough on crime one, Anne-Marie Schubert, she ran for attorney general. She got just 7.5 percent of the vote in that campaign. Um, Mm. And in nearby Contra Costa County, as well as in Alameda County, where Oakland is, the progressive candidates were victorious in their prosecutor races. You're not really hearing those stories, right? The media is way more interested in Chase's recall than this broader picture. But the truth is that San Francisco is one city, and it's just not clear that it's representative of a trend right now. Other progressive prosecutors like Kim Fox in Chicago and Larry Krasner in Philly faced backlash too, but eventually won when they were up for re-elections in 2020 and 2021, respectively. What's different about Chase here? I think it's a really good question, and I don't think it's really about Chesa as much as I think it's about San Francisco. So Mm. Fordham law professor John Pfaff pointed out in a Slate article last week that people see San Francisco as the most liberal city in America. So they think this is just a bad omen for everywhere. But that's a Mm -hmm. real misconception, at least in some pretty relevant ways to this race. First of all, San Francisco has some of the most extreme income inequality in the country, if not the world, honestly. Um, And that really contributes to people's perceptions of crime, of homelessness, Mm -hmm. to gentrification, to those dynamics, right? And there's some really relevant demographic considerations as well. So San Francisco is only 6% Black um, compared to like Philadelphia, which is 44% Black, and Chicago, which is 30% Black. So it seems at least plausible that those percentages are relevant given the way mass incarceration has harmed Black communities in particular. Definitely. Either way, we will be watching what happens in San Francisco and across the country as far as prosecutor races go. Thank you so much for that, Josie. I feel like I understand it better now. And that is the latest for now. We'll be back after some ads. What a day is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She absolutely deserves the best. And that's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, your wife, your auntie, even your granny, okay? Anyone who deserves flowers in your life mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be holiday specific. You get flowers, you're getting flowers, <laughs> everyone's getting flowers. <laughs> Go to books.com and use promo code WAD for 25% off. 
That is B-O-U-Q-S dot com, promo code WAD, Books promo code WAD. Now let's wrap up with some headlines. Headlines. Several communities around the world celebrated Pride this past weekend with tens of thousands partying in cities like Los Angeles, Rome, and Indianapolis. The events were more somber in Orlando yesterday, which commemorated six years since the Pulse nightclub massacre, where 49 people were shot and killed. And homophobic events this weekend proved why Pride is still needed as well. On Saturday, Idaho police arrested and charged 31 members of a white nationalist group in the city of Cordell. Lane. Authorities say they plan to violently riot at the local Pride event, but thankfully someone tipped off their presence to the police after seeing about 20 men jump into a U-Haul truck wearing masks, carrying shields, and looking like, quote, a little army. Meanwhile, in the Northern California city of San Lorenzo, members of the Proud Boys barged into a drag queen story hour at the local library on Saturday. While a drag queen was reading to preschool-aged kids, five men burned burst into the library shouting homophobic and transphobic slurs. Some families told the police that they feared for their safety. Law enforcement de-escalated the situation, and the local sheriff's department is currently investigating this as a hate crime. Just absolutely terrifying when you see those pictures of the men and then the U-Haul. Mm-hmm. Fighting continues in the eastern Ukrainian region of Luhansk. A senior U.S. defense official said Russia will likely seize control of that entire area in the next few weeks. There's been intense fighting throughout the region, and Russian forces have targeted bridges in the city of Sivirondonets in an effort to cut off key supply routes and civilians' ability to evacuate. Russia now controls most of the city, and up to 400 Ukrainian troops and civilians are said to be trapped in a chemical plant there. And an aide to President Volodymyr Zelensky said the number of casualties in the east is way higher than in earlier phases of the war. Ukrainians are still fighting back, but they desperately need more weapons. Officials say weapons from the west aren't coming fast enough or in large enough quantities. Also, in news about this war that isn't quite so heavy, McDonald's is back up and running in Russia under new management. The chain left the country in protest of its invasion of Ukraine, but all 850 Russian McDonald's were then bought by a Siberian billionaire, and some have already reopened under a name that translates to, quote, tasty, and that's it, end quote. (laughs) True. Russian WAD listeners can break the ice cream machines there to express their dissent or not, because those machines are probably broken already. Of course they are. Get ready to be even more resentful of your friend who bikes to work because gas hit $5 a gallon over the weekend. That's according to AAA's national average. As you've probably observed, gas prices have been rising steadily since mid-April, contributing to the historically high inflation that makes it painful to enter any store. Some of the factors that are pushing gas prices sky high are increased post-lockdown demand, Russia's war in Ukraine, and rates of oil production at home and abroad that still haven't returned to pre-pandemic levels. Summer travel season is just around the corner, so demand will probably go up from here. Some experts say we could see a $6 national average within the next couple of months, which for me here in LA means a tank will probably cost 
cost around $14 a gallon plus a blood sacrifice. It's insane out here, people. Interestingly, the state with the current lowest average gas price of about $4.47 is Georgia, where you are, Josie, which is why you have so kindly agreed to host me until we figure out what is going on. It's pretty sad that... uh... $4.47 $4.47 is the national <laughs> low. However, if anybody listening needs a place to stay, you are welcome to my house. Um, as soon as I run it by the other four people who currently live here. Um, today is the second broadcast in a series of televised hearings from the House January 6th Committee, known collectively as Impeachment Part 3, Impeachment Resurrections. Get it? (laughs) Yesterday, we learned the committee would call Trump's last campaign manager, Bill Stepien. Committee members are expected to ask Stepien about the extent to which Trump knew his claims of election fraud were 100 percent made up. One NFL coach could benefit from watching the committee's hearings very closely. Jack Del Rio, who is the defensive coordinator for the Washington Commanders, described the insurrection last week as a, quote, dust up at the Capitol when speaking to reporters. They also implied that lawmakers should shift their focus from it and onto the protest for racial justice held in summer 2020 instead. Del Rio's comments led the commanders to fine him $100,000 to be donated to the U.S. Capitol Police Memorial Fund. But lest you think guys will make comments like this once and not have it be a major feature of their personality, one of Del Rio's former players told the Washington Post, quote, I've heard these for the last two, three years. He's been consistent. Well, at least he's been consistent, I guess. (laughs) Del Rio deleted his Twitter account on Saturday, apparently chastened, though before he went, he did retweet a post that said, quote, I may not agree with what a person says, but I'll defend their right to say it. I gotta say, everybody who posts that quote, you never actually see them defending any perspectives they don't like. Well, of course not. Okay. Funny. Because like, theirs is the only one that matters. Everyone right. who uses that quote is always someone who, you know, wants to make America great again. Right. Always. Every time. And y'all know what I mean when I say that. Okay. You sure <laughs> do. I know exactly what you mean. And those are the headlines. One more thing before we go, starting today at 10 a.m. Eastern, join Crooked for a live group thread of the next January 6th House Committee hearing. We'll provide our real-time commentary for each day of the hearings, and you'll be joined by your favorite Crooked hosts. Don't miss out on live reactions. Head to youtube.com slash crookedmedia. That is all for today. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, make peace with your friend who bikes to work, and tell your friends to listen. And if you are into reading and not just gas prices from six months ago like me, What a Day is also a nightly <laughs> newsletter. Check it out and subscribe at crooked.com slash subscribe. I'm Josie Duffy Rice. I'm Travel Anderson. And, and tune, tune into, into Impeachment, Impeachment Part 3. The most riveting television you have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> What a Day is a production of Crooked Media. It's recorded and mixed by Charlotte Landis. Jasmine Marine and Raven Yamamoto are our associate producers. Our head writer is John Milstein. And our executive producers are Gideon Resnick and Leo Duran. Our theme music is by Colin Gilliard and Kashaka. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. 
I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed.